One of our favorite partners, Lily of the Desert, is celebrating their 50th anniversary this year and are having a huge anniversary sale on all of their products this month, June 2021. They have been making quality, award-winning aloe vera and nutritional products since 1971. Drinking aloe vera every day is a great way to help digestion and balance your stomach acidity naturally. You can boost your immune system, reduce toxins, improve nutrient absorption, and antioxidant support all by drinking aloe every day. Add it to your favorite smoothie or mix it with another juice if you'd like. The aloe will help boost the nutrient absorption of those good-for-you ingredients. We love that they grow the aloe themselves organically and from field to bottle oversee all processing and manufacturing to help maintain quality and lower costs to you. They offer a full range of products including USDA organic aloe juices and gels, herbal formulas, topicals for skin care and hand sanitizer that will both protect and moisturize your hands. Their nutritional multivitamin mix, EcoDrink Naturals, is a great way to stay hydrated while taking your daily vitamins. Check them out at your local health food store and stop by their website, lilyofthedesert.com, to wish them a happy 50th. Hi, I'm Andrea Donsky, founder of NaturallySavvy.com and co-host of our Naturally Savvy podcast. And I am Lisa Davis, MPH health educator, co-host of Naturally Savvy and author of the book, Cleaning Eating Dirty Sex Memoir Cookbook Healthy Lifestyle Guide. At Naturally Savvy, we are here to help you make healthier lifestyle choices. So we are so honored that you are tuning in to listen to our podcast on a weekly basis. And we are here to engage you, have fun, and help you live your healthiest lifestyle. Now, on to the show. Naturally Savvy Podcast is sponsored by Morphus for Menopause. Hi, I'm Lisa Davis. So glad you're listening to Naturally Savvy Radio. I've had this guest on before and I'm going to have him back again. He's been on my NPR show, It's Your Health. He was in my book, Clean Eating Dirty Sex, as one of the contributors. He is not only brilliant, but he is handsome. I'm lucky to be looking at him. You are going to hear us now. We're going to talk about the 30-Day Heart Tune up. I'm talking about Stephen Masley, MD. He is my go to guy for everything health and wellness. And I'm just absolutely thrilled to have him back. Andrea wanted to say she's so sorry she couldn't be here today. You were on her podcast, Morphus, recently, mm-hmm. and she raved about you. And I said, I told you he is amazing, but not in an I told you so kind of way. Okay, Dr. Stephen Masley, welcome to back to Naturally Savvy Radio. How are you? Uh, I'm great. And it's really, I'm delighted to be back with you. It's so nice to have you. Okay, so I took a lot of notes. I, I love what you write in the book, in the 30-Day Heart Tune-Up. Our hearts are everything to us emotionally and physically, the essence of our lives, the source of our love. We sing about our hearts. We praise and honor them. Indeed, we cherish our hearts in poetry and song. But in reality, we don't provide the attention and our care, excuse me, our hearts deserve. This book is like an ode. It's like a love song to your heart because yeah. you get into such detail. I I loved how you talked about your dad being a vascular surgeon and you talk about he did these amazing things, but you wanted to prevent people from going through this in the first place. Take us back to you as a kid and and talk to the, excuse me, talk to us about this. Okay. So here I am as a child who my dad usually left the house by five and didn't get home till nine. So if I wanted to see him, the routine was I would ride my bicycle to the hospital. I wasn't old enough to drive a car. And I'd pass through the, I'd go in through the emergency room, I'd head to the surgery suites, I'd look at the schedule and track him down. And usually I had to put on scrubs to get into the surgery room, and he would usually make me sew a stitch or something. And then I could ask him a question. So that was just like going to see my dad, you know? And people thought it was so wonderful, but I can remember if he wasn't in surgery, he was probably upstairs in the ICU. And up there, if I caught him up there, I might have to pull out someone's NG tube or, you know, I mean, I thought it was gruesome. Here I am a child. I mean, and I should just say for listeners, you can't do this today. This would be totally illegal. But in the 1960s, if your dad was like the head surgeon, you could get it. You could get away with all sorts of stuff. Okay, that's so funny. But yeah, I, I thought we p- put people in hospitals and tortured them. That was my perspective as a child. People like worship my dad because they felt he saved their lives. But um, I, I dreamed of being a doctor that kept people out of the hospital and made them not need ever need to go through these surgeries. 
my dad was an ophthalmologist and the most my sister and I would do is we would just go up and down on the chairs. We thought, you know, the examination chairs, we do that. We just thought that was like the most fun thing ever, but that was all we got. And that was in the seventies. So (laughs) that's really funny. Let's talk about cardiovascular disease. It remains a number one killer of men and women in the U S. So yeah, it shouldn't be. I mean, with the right lifestyle choices, we should be able to prevent 90% of heart disease yet because of the way we manage it, we spend 90% of our economic resources on treating people in, with procedures and hospitalizations. So we do, um, and, and the other 10% goes to management. A tiny fraction of that goes to prevention. So we spend almost all our resources on end stage problems when we really could be preventing it. Now, you know, it comes down to how we can make a huge difference in people's life. We can prevent, as I said, 90% of heart attack, stroke, and sudden death. But I think what people don't realize is how much better they feel when we're doing that, that we improve their circulation, they have more energy, they feel better, they get more active, they have better sexual function. All this stuff gets better when we really help people take the steps they need to take, the right lifestyle choices, to prevent heart disease, improve their circulation, and transform their life. So I have a master's in public health, and so I am all about prevention. And it's amazing. I came here 20 years ago, and I could not find a job as a health educator, even though I've already worked for a long time in the health field. And I thought, now it's changed. When I look now, it's like, oh, okay, if I wasn't doing this, I could find one. But it's just amazing to me. Like, this paradigm has to change. We have to get away from fixing things and putting band-aids on things that need much more than that and actually working on prevention. And that's why I love you. One of the many reasons I love your book so much. Thank you. You also talk about some of the things that are the classic things that we're looking at when it comes yes. to heart disease, classic risk factors, high cholesterol, diabetes, high blood pressure, tobacco use, family history. But then you have this great new risk factors that may be unfamiliar, metabolic syndrome and high blood sugar, abnormal cholesterol, obesity and excessive body fat, inactivity, inflammation, your gut microbiome. I'm mentioning these because people have got to go out and get the book. It's so good. But do you find that in most, well, I guess we would never know. We're not inside most doctor's practices. But would you imagine that a lot of physicians are still just talking about those classic risk factors rather than looking at these new ones? I think probably 90% of physicians are based on the traditional things of, you know, they get paid by insurance to treat and manage a disease. So the the idea of preventing heart disease is not treating and managing disease. You don't get, doctors don't really get paid for that. So if you want to diagnose high cholesterol or hypertension and put them on a drug, that gets them paid. So... I mean, so the reality is there's way too much focus on drug therapy for intermediate markers, you know, and cholesterol is not even the number one cause for heart disease. You know, you want want me to talk about metabolic syndrome. So basically means your blood sugar is elevated. I mean, what happens is over time, if you're just eating too many refined carbs, you're not active enough, you don't eat enough fiber, you're stressed out and your cortisol levels are high. All these things lead to elevated blood sugar, and it can just be mildly elevated blood sugar. But I think what most people don't realize is how harmful that state is, because when your sugar is up all the time, your body gets used to it, and insulin's the hormone that pushes blood sugar back into cells out of the bloodstream. But if your sugar is high all the time, eventually your cells say, you know what, I could care less. You're always elevated, you know, so we're going to just let it run high. And insulin resistance is such a harmful state, you know. So when we get used to that mildly elevated blood sugar, we we become inflamed. We lose a great deal of brain function. Our brain just shuts down. It doesn't, we can't, we're unable, our brain cells cannot use energy. And we grow a lot more plaque. You know, when we sugarcoat the proteins and they get inflamed in our arteries, we grow plaque rapidly. So mildly elevated blood sugar is really the number one cause for plaque growth, heart disease, and dementia, let alone diabetes. So I think we underestimate how important it is, but it's really common. Metabolic syndrome is like a third of all adults, but it's 
more than 50% of baby boomers. So more than half of people in my age group are suffering from accelerated aging. They're on the verge of getting heart disease and memory loss, diabetes, and most of them aren't even aware of it. And most physicians, sadly, are really not addressing this. They're waiting for someone to have diabetes and put them on meds, not realizing that there's probably more damage and more harm, harm done from metabolic syndrome or pre-diabetes than the smaller number of people that have diabetes. Again, it's just so astounding to me. How do you know if you have metabolic syndrome? First sign is your waistline's going up. You could be thin, but pretty unlikely. You know, so the first sign is an elevate, an increasing waistline. You know, um, you know, so for for men, that's um, you know a waistline more than thirty. Let's see, um, they do it in centimeters, but yes, our our waistline is gradually going up, um, and then forty inches for a man, thirty five inches for a woman, but mildly elevated blood sugar, elevated. Um, triglycerides on our when we get a cholesterol profile, elevated blood pressure and blood. If your blood pressure is elevated, that's a sign your arteries aren't functioning and they're sick and growing plaque. So, elevated blood pressure, elevated blood sugar, those are like the two most important signs of heart disease. I'd put cholesterol as a distant third. And as you mentioned briefly, our gut microbiome, we now realize that the reason I had to write this new edition is because we now realize how important the gut microbiome is in causing or preventing heart disease. And that may actually be more important than cholesterol if we really want to make a difference. Wow. I'd love for you to jump into the microbiome. But before that, let's talk about this cholesterol situation, because it seems like that paradigm shifted a little bit, but I still will talk to people who will be like, oh, high cholesterol. Oh, no, sugar's fine. I'm like, what are you talking about? You need to read Dr. Masley's book. Well, High cholesterol is, I mean, we've put way too much emphasis on your total cholesterol level. I mean, if you were trying to assess your economic status, you wouldn't add up all your savings and all your debt, combine them as one number and say, my net money assessment is, you know, $100,000. When you have $50,000 in debt and $50,000 in savings, you've got zero. Call that a hundred thousand would be meaningless, and cholesterol similar in the sense that we have good cholesterol, like LDL is supposed to be the delivery truck that carries nutrients from the gut to your cells. You don't want none. You don't want it overly low. Um, bad cholesterol is the form that forms plaque. So if your LDL is big and fluffy, like a big bubble. Um, and it's full of healthy nutrients, it's not going to grow any plaque. And if it's little, it grows a ton of plaque. The the same factors that cause you to have elevated blood sugar and hypertension give people little plaque bubbles that grow a lot more plaque. So cholesterol is actually a lot more complicated than people realize. So it comes down when when we talk about the size of those cholesterol bubbles, we call them Part of, you know, particle size, how big are those particles, whether it's LDL or HDL cholesterol, bigger is good and little smaller is bad. And um, so it's unfortunately a little complicated. And unless your doctor actually orders an advanced lipid profile, something they don't do very often, you don't really have an idea when you look at your cholesterol, whether it's a good thing or a bad thing. So should you ask your doctor for an advanced? And I'm assuming that would come out of your pocket or? I no, guess no. Usually it would be if you have elevated cholesterol and they want to put you on a drug. Well, I would say, well, what kind of cholesterol? I mean, can we do an advanced lipid profile? Is this big fluffy LDL and I don't need to take this medication that has a lot of side effects? Or am I at really high risk and maybe I should think about taking a medication? So to me, it makes it's an, a very important decision in people looking at drug therapy or looking at changes. Um, and, and the other problem is you can have a normal member over half of people who have a heart attack have normal cholesterol. So just cause it's normal doesn't mean it's okay. You might have all this 
you know, not a lot of cholesterol, but everything you've got is these small LDL particles that grow lots of plaque. So certainly if you have a family history, there would be more reason to want to look at an advanced lipid profile too. And what about a, how do you say this, carotid intima media thickness? Yeah, the carotid artery in your neck, the carotid artery. In that, you can look at the thickness of the plaque lining of the artery. You can basically say, how old are my arteries? And I love that measurement. So in, in my clinic, my favorite measurement for assessing someone's cardiovascular status was to take ultrasound, takes me 10 minutes to look and take pictures. I'm just looking at the neck, um, which has a 97% correlation with the heart. So when they've done studies and they did a heart cath, which is actually a relatively dangerous invasive procedure, one in a hundred people have a serious risk, like a stroke from it. Um, so that's not a that's definitely not a screening procedure if there's a one percent chance of something dreadful happening. Um, so if you get ninety seven percent correlation from doing an ultrasound on your neck that's just gentle and easy and no radiation, I mean to me that's a slam dunk. So carotid IMT carotid intimate media thickness tells you the age of your arteries and importantly you can measure them over time. You can see are your arteries shrinking growing or staying the same. And my, at least from my clinic experience, our average patient is shrinking plaque, whereas the average American is growing about one to one and a half percent every year. And we have hundreds of patients from looking at carotid IMT over time that we show that they shrunk their plaque by 10%, making their arteries at least 10 years younger. St. Petersburg, Florida. Oh, nice. Okay. My guess is that this is something that you would have to ask your doctor for, or would they recommend it based on your uh, cholesterol, blood pressure, et cetera? So certainly if you're high risk, you're looking at medication, you have a family history, it's really helpful to know your plaque status. Am I at risk or not? I mean, it really gives you, and if you are, then tracking it every one to two years can tell you what's happening over time. But remember, now we're looking at aging. This is not a disease. It should be, but it's not considered a disease marker. So honestly, insurance probably doesn't cover it most of the time. Unless you have known existing heart disease, it's probably not going to be covered for the majority of people who have benefit. But, you know, for a one-time test, it could be anywhere from $150 to $350. It's not the you know, it's expensive, but for a one-time thing, it's not really not so bad that you could do that. To get your, usually most people are going to have to like Google for their area, where could I have a carotid IMT study? And it might be at a university center and they probably would need to get a referral from their doctor. Although the average physician's not going to do this and the average hospital doesn't offer it. They're doing, the hospitals do ultrasound to measure if you qualify for a vascular procedure, surgery on a carotid artery, that's what they do them for. They're like hoping you're 70% blocked so that you can say, oh, you qualify for surgery. Isn't that, you know, the good news is you qualify for surgery. My goal is you'd never get 70% blocked if you followed my program and measured this sooner. We'd be able to avert that you know, end stage disease point. Well, that's why it's so incredible. Your book, The 30 Day Tune-Up, I mean, you give us the tools to do it and you give us such incredible advice too. And you have a great sense of humor. I like this. You write, stop counting calories and become a Mets fan. <laughs> Tell us about that. So, yeah, I, I, I can't, it's, I've become disillusioned with trying to get people to count calories because it almost, it doesn't work. You know, hunger is hormonal. It's driven by deep urges. And you might be able to postpone something for a little bit, but most of us are not going to be able to count calories and control that when you have cravings to eat something. And cravings come from eating the wrong food. It could be, you know, you're feeding food that gives you bad bacteria in your gut, and those gut bacteria make you produce chemicals that go to your brain that give you cravings 
or the wrong foods. And it, you're not going to overcome those with willpower very long. So it, my thought is Mets are, instead of baseball, my wife was just watching the Met game the other night with Tampa Bay, but Mets are also metabolic calorie units has to do with fitness. How fit are you? So I love being a Met fan in terms of measuring your fitness because what we one of the most powerful predictors for re- preventing and reversing heart disease. I mean, there's food, there's nutrients, there's stress management, but fitness is actually probably one of the most powerful measures of not getting heart disease. And I try to give people tools and where they can measure their MET score their metabolic energy burning capacity so that they can get an idea of how fit they are. Cause it doesn't matter how many minutes you work out per week. What really benefits you is how fit you are. And to be fit, that means we have to do some strength training and some interval training to really get the maximum amount of our time spent working out. That is so good to hear. I do Pilates twice a week and in the Pilates, it's 45 minutes. I lift weights And then I just got a pool, which has been a lifelong dream. And if you follow my Instagram, there's going to be a lot of pool pictures because it's, it's just so amazing. And I'm, that's the one thing I'm really good at is swimming athletically. And then my husband works out like a maniac, yoga, biking, running, Tai Chi. I mean, he's just so it's, it's, that's, that's great. He'll be really happy to hear that. The mix is so nice. What I'm hearing you is you have a mix of some strength training, some stretching, some aerobic intensity. That's what we want. We want some intense aerobic moments and we want some strength training to go through it and then throw in some stretching with Pilates or yoga and optimal. That's Uh, really, you know, I love the way you described a great workout routine. So eat right for your heart. You have five components. You've got adequate fiber, healthy fats, lean protein, beneficial beverages, and fabulous flavors. And of course, in the book, you go into depth about this. Now, you and I have talked a lot about healthy fats. We've done shows on smoke points for oils. You know, we love our avocado oil. There's still a lot about coconut oil. And in the book, you write a little bit about that. You say it's it's more complicated. What What's complicated with coconut oil? Well, coconut oil is great for athletes as an energy source because they have these middle chain triglyceride, MCT fats that are really good if you're a long distance endurance athlete. They, um, coconut oil also has some antimicrobial activities, so it can help fight off infections. Um, and, and for some people, those MCTs, especially for people with the APOE4 gene, have some benefit for their brain. Now, coconut oil isn't the best source. I mean, if you were really trying to do that, you would just take purely MCTs that are the middle chain length. Only about 20% of coconut oil is really the MCT length that really benefits the brain. But it's got a lot more than other common foods. So, you know, coconut oil has got a lot of positive press for being good for your brain, although the best for your brain would be if you had memory loss, you wouldn't use coconut oil. You'd use specific like capric acid, you know, MCT oil. But the downside is that they've done studies on it, and we know it raises cholesterol. Um, it, it actually makes a little more fluffy, bigger LDL and less of the little stuff, but it raises net cholesterol overall. So if you're on a cholesterol drug and you start using a lot of coconut oil, it can actually worsen your cholesterol profile to some degree. On an advanced lipid profile, it might be more neutral, but your doctor may not even be aware of that. The biggest challenge is when they looked at people who had heart disease and they use coconut oil, their arteries constricted, they went tightened up, and they decreased blood flow. Well, I'm not a big fan of decreasing blood flow, especially if you have heart disease. So I think what we... So I think if you're a generally healthy person, you're an athlete, you work out, and also if you've got cognitive decline, coconut oil would be a fat that you could think might have some really good uses. And it's fun to cook with. You know, although as you said, smoke point, it's got a low smoke point, so you can only use it at medium and low heat. But if you have high if you're high risk for heart disease or you have heart disease, The last thing I want to do is have you take something that's been shown to decrease circulation. It's not been shown to decrease circulation in athletes. Let's be clear. Only in people with heart disease did it have this finding. So for high-risk people, I ask them to skip the coconut oil 
and focus more on healthier oils like extra virgin olive oil and, as you said, avocado oil for higher heat cooking. You know what's interesting is I, I keep hearing people say, oh, no, coconut oil is good for higher heat. And they'll buy their popcorn cooked in coconut oil, their chips. And I said, look, if you're going to eat popcorn or chips, get them. And they have ones in avocado oil. I, why do you, Where did this come from, do you think? Do you hear this, too, that coconut oil so is so here's the thought, though. It's mostly saturated fats, and saturated fats tolerate heat. So most of the fat in coconut oil is heat-stable. But they're missing the point that it has these delicate, essential fatty acids that are probably the healthiest part of the coconut oil. And those are the ones that are highly damaged as soon as we get above medium heat. And it smokes. So when you go to make popcorn with coconut oil, you're going to see this white foamy smoke appear really early in the process. And so it's a small percentage of it, but it's still being damaged and it's forming toxic free radicals. When those essential fatty acids are damaged, they don't just disappear. They turn into free radicals that are inflammatory and harmful. So, no, we... I don't want to have a small portion of your fat that you use become a toxic compound, which is why I say we should not heat coconut oil at high heat. All right. That is so incredibly helpful. This was so interesting to me. Um, now, this, you have the sugar conundrum. I already knew this, but a lot of people probably don't. You write, quote, most people are unaware that a bowl of white rice, a bowl of white flour, and a bowl of whole grain flour all result in nearly the same abnormal spike in blood sugar levels. Yeah, why don't you just have a bowl of sugar instead? Well, I think of it like cake. You know, flour is like, whether it's cake or bread, to me, it's the same thing. I'm not going to say you can't have birthday cake on your birthday. It's your birthday. Have fun. Live it up. But you shouldn't. I mean, most people realize they shouldn't be eating birthday cake every single day. And bread's almost the same, has almost the same sugar content. I think we don't realize when you take a grain and you grind it into flour, especially a fine flour like baker's flour, it acts just like sugar in your bloodstream. There is no difference between sugar and finely ground up flour. So, yes, you're, I mean, that's a very important point you're making, that all those flour products cause a huge surge. The crackers, even if they're whole grain, they have more nutrients because they're whole grain, but they have the same glycemic response as a bowl of sugar. Another thing I thought was interesting, you said partial exceptions to the flour rule, oat flour, pumpernickel, and pasta. Now, again, you don't want to eat a ton of pasta. You mentioned you do it like in Italy where they have a tiny salad plate of pasta, and then they're eating a lot of vegetables and lean protein. The oat flour was interesting. So if you're using, you need flour for a recipe, you go to the oat flour because of the insoluble and soluble fiber? Well, it has more soluble fiber, and so it causes a lower blood sugar rise. So, yes, oat flour is better than typical wheat flour, although it doesn't have the gluten content. So it doesn't really work as well if that you're trying to make something. But it's, you know, it's a compromise. My best flour substitute, though, is almond flour, which more might be called almond meal. And so most of the time when I'm following a recipe that calls for wheat flour, whether it's white flour or whole wheat flour, I'm going to use ground almond meal the blanched, um, finely ground almond milk, because that has very, almost no sugar to it. It's a healthy <laughs> fat, and it's got fiber, and it actually works pretty well. I've made pancakes and cookies and banana bread and all sorts of things with almond flour, and it's, it works out pretty well. Oh, yeah. We're huge fans of almond flour in our house. Absolutely love it. Let's talk a little bit about protein because I do like my grass-fed meat and you do recommend if you're going to eat meat, but you talk about turkey, bison, chicken, more wild caught, you know, animals and things like that. Talk a little bit about that because again, that kind of goes back to the cholesterol thing or does it? Is it a different reason you don't want to eat um you know, the fatty meat, because you say lean protein. I know about, you know, not eating, you know, um, factory farm, but I was just curious about the lean part because I tend to like my, um, I like my fat. <laughs> so let's, well, I, I get it. So 
Back in the 80s and 90s, we said meat was bad for you, especially red meat, because it had all this cholesterol and saturated fat. So maybe 20 years ago, we realized that when you eat cholesterol, it's a drop in the bucket compared to the amount of cholesterol your liver produces every day. So whether you eat cholesterol or not, it probably has very little impact on your cholesterol levels. The saturated fat was more important in that saturated fat raised your cholesterol a little bit when you ate it, increased production of LDL. But almost all, but they did this huge meta-analysis of randomized clinical trials, cohort trials, case control. And the bottom line was saturated fat has very little impact on heart disease. Yes, it might raise your cholesterol a little bit, but it didn't really do anything to it. So if it's not the saturated fat or the cholesterol, why, you know, there's still a, a, some relationship there. So more, more important to me is, is it clean or not? Probably 90 to 95% of the meat produced in this country goes to a feedlot where they feed these, they fatten these animals on grains that have pesticides and chemicals and hormones and herbicides and you name it, all these chemicals. And they, in, they can inject them or feed them with hormones to promote weight gain. They feed them antibiotics because the antibiotics kill the good bacteria in the gut and promote bad bacteria in the gut that cause you to grow fat. So antibiotics are actually used as a fattening agent to fatten them up by modifying the gut microbiome. So feedlot meat to me is like, whether it's poultry or pork or red meat, it's awful. Um, So your point is if I'm going to eat red meat, I should eat, you know, grass-fed or pasture-raised or organically fed. And I totally agree. That's far more important than the saturated fat. The only caveat is now the gut microbiome. If you eat more red meat, especially – now, here's the challenge. Here's the, here's the part we don't really know quite well yet. We know if you eat a lot of red meat and you don't eat a lot of vegetable, fruit, beans, and nuts – you produce bad bacteria that make a compound called TMAO, trimethylamine oxide. If your levels are elevated, you have 62% higher risk for dying of heart disease, a heart attack and stroke, than if they're low. So if you're a vegan, or if you follow a Mediterranean diet and eat a lot of vegetable, fruit, beans, and nuts, you don't form these. How much red meat you can eat per week is controversial. We, you know, Maybe it's individualized. I mean, I would say people who eat a lot of red meat should probably ask their doctor to check their TMAO level and see if it's low, normal, or high. And if it's high, then they should probably cut back. That would be my best advice. But this is an area that's just recently been discovered and is going to probably, our recommendations will change over time. Okay. No, that's really good to know. Yeah. I don't eat it a ton, maybe a couple times a week, but I do enjoy it. I really do. Let's talk a little bit about herbs and spices. I mean, I'm all about the garlic. I mean, I'm just, just love, we put it in everything and it's, it just makes your food so much better. Why are herbs and spices so important? Well, they taste good. So we'll eat that food more often when we use them. We're bi- we have a biochemical affinity. When we smell them, it's fragrant. We love it because our brain is rewarding us for eating them more often. And these compounds have very high anti-inflammatory and anti-accident capacity. You know, so by weight, these things are like the most important anti-inflammatory, antioxidant foods we eat. Beans are actually the most antioxidant-rich food. But spices and herbs are super powerful, you know, so they can they influence if we're inflamed or not. And probably the two best examples of that are like rosemary, all the Italian herbs, for that matter, or herbs de Provence, um, the oreganos, the thyme. But rosemary has really special, powerful, potent anti-inflammatory activity. And then the other big group is the curry spices, especially mm-hmm. turmeric, which has a compound called um, curcumin. And that has a big impact on lowering inflammation. And inflammation is a very important age marker. And inflammation is what grows plaque in our arteries. 
So adding more spices and herbs like garlic and Italian herbs and curry spices, and that's going to lower inflammation. Our joints will hurt less. Our brain will be protected and will decrease our arterial plaque formation. And our food tastes better too. I think that's the most important thing. If you can make your food taste fantastic, which Mediterranean food does, probably, you know, much of the world's population is delighted eating Mediterranean food because it tastes so good. But fortunately, it's probably the healthiest diet on the planet, too. Oh, wow. Yeah, you know, I'm there's so much about beans. I love beans. But then you hear people say, oh, they have lectins. What's going on with that? So lectins are compounds that not everyone can digest. And for some people, they can cause quite a bit of gastrointestinal distress, leaky gut, inflammation, and a long cascade of problems. So beans have the highest ORAC score of any food ever tested, antioxidation, blocking oxidation, protecting against aging. They're loaded with protein and all these nutrients and minerals, uh, magnesium and potassium. But, But for people who are lectin sensitive, if they cause GI distress, then you should avoid them. Now, sprouting them will help re- digest and remove the lectin content. So if you have a mild lectin sensitivity and you sprout your beans, meaning you just soak them overnight, they don't actually have, when we say sprouted, it's not like there's a big sprout growing out of them. It's that that chemical process has started inside of what looks like a typical bean. So sprouted means you've just initiated it. And the, the lectins are the first thing to be digested in that sprouting pro- and removed is the bean is turning into a sprout. So, but if you have real, probably 10% of people have major lectin sensitivity and wheat is a lectin for that manager. In the so if you're gluten sensitive, that's 20% of the population. That's a very serious condition that needs to be addressed and totally avoided. So for the 10% of people who are lectin intolerant, avoid beans. I, you know, how I've seen, you know, you could try digestive supplements, but don't make yourself miserable. Don't do it. I'm um, just like, if you're dairy intolerant, avoid dairy. If you're gluten intolerant, avoid, you know, that just makes sense. Anybody with a chronic health condition should try a elimination diet, cutting out things like dairy, gluten, beans, shellfish, eggs, Try to figure out what you react to and then give it up. Um, For the 90% of us, I still think, you know, if you look at blue zones or Mediterranean diets, beans are essential to that and have huge health benefits. Yeah. I mean, I think what I, what was bothering me was that when people are like, oh, beans are just bad across the board because they have lectins without clarifying it the way that you did. No, they're not unless you have this lectin sensitivity. So that was really helpful. Let's jump into, we talked about exercise. And that is so incredibly important. And you mentioned that the combination that we're doing is great. And this sexier you, of course, I love. Your heart is at the heart of sexual function and dysfunction. You were in my book, Clean Eating, Dirty Sex. And not about dirty sex, cookbook, memoir, healthy lifestyle guide. And you just went into such such depth in that chapter. It was fantastic. And, it, it you know, it's like a red flag, right? I mean, if your downstairs isn't working as a guy, then that's a that's a that can be a blood that's a blood flow issue, right? And that's uh, could be lead to heart. Same wait a second, something's going on. The first sign of heart disease in many men is erectile dysfunction. Now, now I'm not against them, you know, using a drug like Viagra or something else. But the truth is, if they followed the right lifestyle, they'd start shrinking their plaque and they wouldn't need it. The worst thing a doctor could do is say. Here's a Viagra, pat you on the back and say, I fixed your problem. They haven't. You have heart disease and you may die of a heart attack or stroke or sudden death. So, um, yeah, nothing wrong with those medications. But the goal is reverse it, improve your circulation, shrink your plaque, and you don't need those medications. That's my goal. Now, remember, for women, also, when your circulation decreases, you have less sensation, less lubrication. I mean, so there's... For men and women, decreased circulation has a huge impact on sexual function. And when you you eat the right foods and you get fit and you manage your stress and you meet your nutrient needs, you enhance your circulation. And both men and women oftentimes notice really improved sexual function. 
That's awesome. You know, you mentioned shrinking plaque. That's huge. So this this isn't about just not getting worse. This is about reversing. Yeah, we published that. So, you know, we've looked at nearly a thousand patients and followed them over, you know, a 10 year period of time. And we, we were able to publish multiple articles. We pre, you know presented this at the American Heart Association meetings, the American College of Nutrition. And we showed what nutrients, what activities, you know, what factors have a big impact on growing plaque and shrinking plaque. And those are really blood sugar, body weight. You know, it, we actually looked at, we called them five Fs. Fiber, as in vegetable, fruit, beans, and nuts. Fatty fish, you know, for the omega-3s. Um, body fat is especially the fat around your waistline. Um, you know, so there's like these Fs, you know, that we can look at that help predict. And, of course, fitness is one of those as well. And, you know, food makes the right, all the right, you know, the right food and not the wrong food and food with the right nutrients. That's a really important factor, too. It absolutely is. Well, let's jump into the eating plan. And it's so great. I mean, your recipes are incredible. You've got breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Everything looks great. Uh, I just wanted to mention on the eating plan, you say the 10 key steps to change in your habits. I'm just going to read a few because people need to get the book of following our sample eating plan, shopping and meal planning appropriately, storing food properly, having useful kitchen utensils close at home, preparing and cooking food using a safe practices, eating mindfully, and then you got to get the book to get the rest. I made some of your recipes, uh, Mexican scrambled eggs with black beans, salsa, and corn tortillas like it's it's so simple but yet the flavor is so good uh grilled chicken over mixed greens and vegetables i made that and i love the masley house vinaigrette that was really good you have to tell us about that i want to make the chicken stir fry with orange ginger sauce uh and and i have also i'm going to make the chicken italian herbs and quinoa because i love quinoa you know one thing i like to do lately is i'll take some quinoa instead of rice i'll take quinoa and some pinto beans or black beans a huge handful of cilantro, half an avocado, and green onion, and jalapeno, and a little bit of olive oil, and salt, and it's delicious. So there we go. Yeah, it's really good. I'm going to probably have it for lunch after this. All right, tell us it. Oh, okay. Nice. <laughs> it is really good. Okay, so let's talk about this Masley House vinaigrette. How did you come up with that? Is We've just been practicing for a while. You know, olive oil is such a, you know, healthy fat, especially when you don't cook it. So extra, not regular olive oil, which has been treated with heat and chemicals, but extra virgin olive oil, that first press. And it's how do you make that into a dress, you know, the dressing. So back 20 years ago, I was a little fat phobic. I was a little worried about fat. So I was trying to make these versions of 50-50 and it, it was too tart, too acidic. You know, so now I'm down to, you know, three, mostly minimum two to one olive oil to vinegar, but preferably three to one and softer olive oils that aren't, you know, so harsh. Um, champagne olive oil, red wine vinegar, balsamic, uh, you know, vinegar, any of those to go with wonderful olive oil, but then you can add herbs to it. The herbs had a different, when you put in a little thyme or rosemary or oregano, it adds a whole different dimension to that. When you let it sit there for a little bit, and you mentioned garlic, I love putting in like one, you know, clove of garlic, mash it, dice it up and drop it in. Okay, now you've just, now you've just transformed your vinaigrette to something amazing. You could, you know, put in a few blueberries wouldn't take many 60 blueberries and now you've just converted it to a blueberry vinaigrette usually in a restaurant they do blueberry syrup it's full of sugar you know kind of like oh you ruined it but no just take real blueberry they can even be frozen blueberries and just put it in there and use one of those little hand blenders or use a little whisk and whisk it up now you've got blueberry vinaigrette so those are all options of the Kind of the same thing, though, right? You know, it's three to one, good quality, extra virgin olive oil, some vinegar. You could use lemon juice instead of vinegar or orange juice, you know, like on some salads can be really nice with seafood. Um, Add some herbs, maybe garlic. um, Maybe you could put in a raspberry, a few raspberries or a little bit of blueberry if you want. You can add a touch of mustard, 
all depends what you're making and you can just play with it. And, you know, it's, it's the central theme in our house that we've kind of played with for years. So now the turkey chili looks great. How would you say it is spicy wise? That's totally up to you. So my wife and I, we do like chili spice and our kids are like, they're big on hot sauce now. So now, now, but they're adults, they're like 20 and 30 years old, but um, so I, I like more, but some people can't tolerate it. My stepdad, if I gave him a drop of hot chili, he would break out into profuse sweat and it would ruin the whole meal for him. So I realized a long time ago, chili spice is a very individual thing. You can ruin a meal by putting too much. You can enhance a meal by putting in just throwing out. I mean, people use cayenne chili pepper a tiny bit, just a few grains in dessert. Because you don't have any spiciness, but when you hit that extra taste bud, that fifth taste bud, you know, in the mouth. So even on desserts, you can use tiny, you know, portions of what you might think of for another dish. And it adds a flavor component without even hotness. Um, that's amazing. Oh, that's great. Yeah, I see a lot of really high quality dark chocolates on the market that have like cayenne or, you know, Chipotle. Well, I don't know what Chipotle, but definitely cayenne. I was looking at the ratatouille recipe because I was thinking about all those Italian herbs you were talking about. That just looks amazing as well. I mean, you've got so many great herbs in there. I want to jump into desserts because I'm a big dark chocolate fan. And I like that you write in the book that, you know, it's got to be dark. It, that milk chocolate, it's not doing you any favors. Well, milk chocolate is not even really chocolate, right? No. It's candy. <laughs> Just call it candy. It's so funny you say that because my daughter's best friend was over the other day. And she's like, don't you don't you guys have any milk chocolate? Like we have a chocolate drawer and it's all 70 or above. My husband and I eat the 90 and I'll eat the 70 if I want something sweet. And my daughter's just used to the the 90s too much, but she's used to the 70s. She goes, this is really sweet. And to her friend, it just tastes like bitter, 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 because she's so used to this sweet, sweet, sweet taste. And then she's like, well, don't you have any caramel? And I'm like, do you know whose house you're at? You know I'm a health food nut, right? <laughs> like, come on, come on, hon. Sweet, sweet kid. But I'm like, no. And then afterwards, my mom's like, you should have more sweet things. I'm like, no, well, she can come that's over. That's a very important point you're bringing up, though, because they've actually done studies on average kids, and they're eating so much sugar every day. They, like, blindfolded them and gave them a blueberry and I think a strawberry blindfolded, and they couldn't tell the difference. They're so used to overusing sugar that they, they've lost their taste sense of taste. So they took all the sugar out for a week and refed them blindfolded. And they were like, well, duh, obviously it's a blueberry. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's so funny. It's a good example that you just gave with your, you know, the neighbor child coming. And we, we had this experience in our house all the time. Growing, with our kids growing up. Yeah, I bet. She was upset we didn't have Cheez-Its. I'm like, yeah, I'm not buying that crap. No, um, chemical okay, toxins. So, yeah. It's terrible. Uh, you have a pear, peach, and blueberry crumble. That looks delicious. Crumbles are awesome. If you're going to have company, that's like one of my favorite go-to, you know. You take fruit, and you can add just a touch of, like, um, tapioca to thicken it, a little lemon for some tartness, <laughs> Um, the fruit provides the sugar, whichever fruit you use. Berries are really nice because they have a high pectin content. And then, you know, sprinkle on like chopped toasted nuts on the top, put it in the oven and serve it. I mean, I've never, sometimes I'll add a little touch of pork to it. I mean, I've never had a guest not be like, wow, this is amazing. And it's so easy to make. Absolutely. I'm curious about your... Chocolate raspberry orange souffle. I get I get intimidated by the word souffle. I've never made one before. Tell us about this. <laughs> Those souffles are actually, if you follow the directions, they're pretty easy. But there's some critical steps. Like when you whip up the egg yolks, they really do need to be stiff because that's where the that's what the rise comes from. Is and then stirring them in. You can't blend them in. You've got to gently stir them in. So there's a cut and you can't just shake the oven <laughs> once you're baking it because it'll collapse. But you can open the door gently to peek inside. If you, I mean, so there's a couple tricks that I try to really write out clearly. 
Um, but souffles are fun to make. And, you know, so they're light and fluffy and you can give them whichever flavor you want, like raspberry um, is a great, you know, an orange, and you maybe a little chocolate, chocolate powder tossed in. You know, that's a great, those are great flavors for anything. And when you combine it with a souffle, okay, now you just made it really special. Oh, that's, well, you're really special. Your book is really special, 30 Day Heart Tune-Up. Stephen Masley, MD. I mean, this book, I told my husband when I finished, I said, honey, you have to read this book because I know he'll love it. It's just incredible. The detail you go into, I mean, you're saving lives, really. Like, get this book. I'm not being hyperbolic. I'm just such a big fan. I love all the work that you do. And I just think you're incredible. Is there anything you wanted to add? And I definitely want to have you back because this is so great. So I think the, the biggest issue with maybe heart disease is Let's face it, the, when it comes to health issues, the average American is a procrastinator. So one of the easy things is to realize when we're overweight, we stand on the scale or you go to put on a pair of pants and they don't fit and you go, okay, that's it. That's the final straw. I'm going to do something about this. Well, so there's an obvious sign, right? With, the problem with heart disease is there's not an obvious sign. We don't realize the problem. And the first symptom of heart disease is devastating. It's, I mean, typically it's a heart attack, a stroke, or you're dead. I mean, those are awful. So waiting for a sign is really bad news. I mean, you could get lucky. You see a doctor. They're high, worried about your risk factors. They do a test study. They see you've got abnormal. But that's not the majority of cases. So here's the, so here's the way people can really realize, though, that they're at risk for heart disease is they don't feel fantastic. They don't have awesome circulation. I want people the circulation to be amazing, that they're full of energy. They feel good. You know, their sexual function is fantastic. I want people to really, when they exercise, they just feel like their your leg, their heart's pumping and their legs and strings because they got such good circulation. I think most people have forgot what it feels like to be feel fantastic, amazing yeah. all day long. They've forgotten. They're so used to feeling, oh, oh I'm tired, but you know. So um, my goal is to don't wait for something devastating to happen. Take start steps today so that you can feel fantastic. Your, li your, your life is, you know, awesome and joyful. And that, that's my biggest message is it's time for all of us to get started to feeling better and preventing the number one killer heart disease that still exists for men and women today. Well, you are a gift, and so is your book. Again, the 30-Day Heart Tune-Up, Stephen Masley, MD. Dr. Masley, how do we find out all about you uh, on social media? So they can visit the website. I've got a regular blog where I send out health tips and recipes, and it's free. Just go to drmasley.com, www.drmasley.com, and it's free. You can unsubscribe it every time. So that's I, I think that's a great way to get regular uh, few times a month information that is really useful. Yeah. And you have a lot of other great books too. So people need to get this book and then they got to get your other books and you're just fabulous. Dr. Mousley, thank you so much for being here on Naturally Savvy. I really appreciate it. Well, Lisa, I love your show. Um, I think you do a great job and it's a pleasure to get to talk with you again. Well, that's it for our show today. Thank you so much for listening. We appreciate you and we would appreciate it if you could please rate and review and leave a comment because the more you engage with our podcast, the more you will find it and help other people find it wherever they listen to their podcast. So be sure to follow us. I'm at Andrea Donsky and at Naturally Savvy and Lisa at Lisa Davis MPH. Thank you so much. And please share this episode because the more you share shows you care. We'll see you next time.